Things are going to start happening to me now. You've done all the reading. You're a scholar. You're a professor. You've done all the reading. You've done the intellectual heavy lifting. Or less, he shouldn't die. You wouldn't know a fact if it begged you all night long. Want to like, um, you know, give the wrong impression because I am, I I am very high. Could ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah, care. I'm a libertarian. What I'm getting is Did why? you vote for Joe Jorgensen or Trump? Who? That's Joe the, Jorgensen? That was the perfect answer, thank you. <laughs> that was Welcome everybody to the Libertarian Podcast Review. Or should I say? Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. <laughs> I think that's how he opens it. I've heard a lot of Tom Woods clips, everybody. Tyler Yonke, day five or six or seven. I don't know how we're cutting this up, but Tom Woods Week continues on. Hope you're enjoying it. I am. I've gone through tons of these things now, uh, but we're on the home stretch. Hopefully today we'll get through the last segments here. Clips day five, which I said I think we've extended out to seven. Uh, episodes 1840 to 2300, eh, plus a little bit. Uh, I mean, damn you, Tom Woods. When I started this, saga it was just 2300 episodes and i should have calculated out that it would be more but it's not my name is tyler yonke libertarian podcast for you go ahead and just click like uh subscribe to our show we're on rumble just go lpr on rumble and you'll find our show libertarian podcast review what do we do we review libertarian and a libertarian adjacent podcast finding those autistic liberty stars you just didn't know you needed in your life we also do a kill pod which is a break kind of a a, a different way of, of mocking of uh, kill Tony and we bring Liberty star, whatever, whoever you talk about almost anything for a minute rant. We have that. And then we, we talked to you uh, last one too. We were specific had to be uh, conspiracy theorists with top lobster. Check that one out. Uh, Perry of not Pinord. If you guys know who that is a different Perry um, legals. What is it? election legal? I think it is on Twitter. Uh, he came on and we just did legal stuff. So those have been pretty good. Um, and as Dave Smith uh, said, oh, that's that's a good idea. I like that. <laughs> he came on our show once to uh, dirtied himself, soiled himself in the confines of the studios here. Me and my buddy Andy Garbage Maine. Check us out. Okay. All those things are out of the way. <clears throat> We're getting right to it. Look, episodes 1840 to 2300 you started to get really into the mix of the COVID stuff. And Tom really cut his teeth on these ones. I mean, he went deep and he went, uh, it was good. So that's what we're going to start listening to is some COVID things. And for me, what's fascinating is when you start to listen to it with uh, the benefit of hindsight. And by the way, the benefit of hindsight is uh, uh, John Ziegler. I think we're going to feature him at one point too. Um, that's his podcast. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, we've got is was tom woods correct on a lot of these things absolutely one i was so first one here uh, 1851 the charts that tell the covid story ian miller this is just some gentleman that uh you will find out a little bit about him uh but on twitter started making charts and i think that's what spurred tom's chart extravaganza quiz as well so uh let's start here this first one who is ian uh the charts that uh, what does it say the charts that tell the covid story sounds like a uh, it is a nightmare covid story was a nightmare take it away Ian so Tom. you're always right on the ball so what's your background 
Well, I don't really have a background in science or medicine or anything like that. I just, you know, I love, always loved statistics and data. And, you know, I, I don't really, this all kind of started out of nowhere. I, I was sitting around in you know, March 2020, like everybody else and, and reading the news. And I didn't know what to think either. And, you know, I came across some articles online that were kind of immediately poking holes in the narrative. And I just started looking at the data for myself. And what really got me started was looking at the modeling that was out there, the IHME modeling, especially. And I started to notice, well, this is, this is just way off. This isn't making sense. That's not what they were telling us. And, uh, you know, and then it just started from looking through, looking through the data myself. And I mean, this, I tell people all the time, it's like, this stuff isn't complicated. It's not, nothing I'm doing is that, is that complicated. It's not difficult. It's really basic Excel stuff. It's just knowing what to look for and being able to kind of put it together in a clear, concise way. And, and that's really what my background has been. Is, you know, I went to college and presentations, doing a lot of presentations. And, and for my job, I do a lot of that and trying to communicate clearly and effectively and simply so that people would immediately be able to just look at it and, and immediately get, a, get the point and see what, what I'm trying to say. And really, like you say, with the counties, that, that's been the thing that's driven me the whole time is just it, if all of these measures were so important and were so effective, it should show up. And if you're trying to say that your county is going to do better because people are listening and wearing masks, well, we can we can show that. <laughs> you know, we have the data to show that. And uh, it, almost every single time it, it doesn't show up. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's really been my, my purpose from the beginning, which is try to communicate clearly and concisely. And there's a lot of people that have been kind of, you know, on the team reality side, as we call it, that can do amazing, incredible work and, and very complicated work and much more than I can. But my goal has really just been to try to do it as simply and clearly as, as possible. What's interesting there is, and, and I'll just keep cruising along here because we've got a lot of clips to take in. And uh, Interesting part, though, there's so much data, but the data is out there. I always notice that, too. It's like, oh, let's let's take a look, and I'd find all the COVID data that I needed to for my county or my state. The problem is it was just reading through it or, or having someone in this. I don't know if he was not working during this time or maybe he had more time. Uh, we all did. Well, some of us. I, I did a lot more bike riding. But anyway, um, let's keep going here. Comparisons and learning from the past. Arguments over and over again, and people haven't seemed to learn at all over the last year that, yeah, you know, you can you can compare places. You can compare similar places in the same state, in the same region, and not see any positive benefit not for seen. places that were going through all these incredibly strict restrictions versus ones that were much looser. And to your point, that's exactly right. It's it's I'm trying to I'm trying to show, and I think we've shown a lot of a lot of data from a lot of different places that the restrictions didn't really matter. It didn't really save any lives. And Ignoring that is just doing a disservice to everybody else. Now, one kind of response people might have is to say that maybe some of the places you're comparing are so unlike each other that it's not a fair comparison. But my response to that is that in some cases, maybe they have a point. But even there, given how devastatingly deadly we were told this thing was going to be and how extremely important the mitigation measures were to the point where having you burn through your savings and lose your livelihood and, and not get medical treatment that you need and all these other really important things of life were considered to be trivial bits of nothingness to be totally ignored. I mean, then the effects of these mitigation measures darn well better overwhelm whatever trivial differences exist between one place and another. We better see it in the charts clearly and unambiguously. And we don't see it clearly and unambiguously. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, Part of that might be an issue with the public health people and the, and the experts and the CDC kind of setting up expectations that were never realistic. And, you know, that's that's their fault. You know, I didn't make those comments. They're trying to tell us if you wear a mask, we can control this in four to six to eight weeks and it'll be over. And obviously that didn't happen. And, you know, that was in the summer of last year and it, it didn't happen. And, you know, if you if you social distance, if you avoid large gatherings, if you ban crowds, if you don't have people over. Well, people did all that. You know, we all did all that. And in some areas, they didn't do nearly as much and had better results. And if those measures were so important, like you say, you know, it should show up immediately in every comparison to me. It, it shouldn't even be a question. I shouldn't be able to be to be doing what I'm doing if, you know, Florida and California, for example, where California has been one of the most restrictive areas in the world, really, for, for most of the, the last year and, you know, didn't have better results. And like you said, if it was so important, 
it should show up every single time, or at least the overwhelming majority of the time. And not only does it doesn't show up the overwhelming majority of the time, the opposite shows up the majority of the time. What, uh, so much there. And by the way, this is crucial to have on our, I don't know, Rolodex of, of playlists of something uh, back here. So um, everyone needs to just preserve Tom's stuff and everyone else that did this during the time so we can, one, we're right. I, I, who was it? Um, Chamberlain, Will Chamberlain. He's a he's a douchey um, conservative. Uh, and he was talking, I don't know, remember who he was tweeting with, but he basically said, look, I, I got this all wrong about the lockdown stuff. You know, I got, and I'm just like, you know, I'm sorry. You got it. It was, it was freedom 101. It was super easy. Tom broke this and we, from day one. We all got this right. That douchebag, fat fuck, got it. Sorry. Sorry. Bleep myself out there. He got it wrong. And um, I don't think it's just okay because a lot of the people that got it wrong were got it wrong in a, in a very authoritarian way. And then they perpetuated a lot of the, the faults and or the, the, the police actions and all kinds of other things that happened to other people. There are people who lost jobs, people lost careers. There's people who lost their lives for this stuff. So um, anyway, uh, enough of my ranting about him moving the goalposts uh, of dire predictions. And by the way, my wife has said lately, it'd be interesting to see if someone writes a book or writes, you know, does a real movie or if there's real news, if it's like, like uh, weapons of WMD, um, they weren't out there and it's obvious that they lied us into the Iraq war. Uh, Iraq, Iraq, whatever war. Um, is it going to be just plain and obvious to everybody at some point? Hopefully, hopefully. But I don't know if it's anyway. That's why it's important to have all this stuff. Go he has ahead. recently said, look, Florida is doing in terms of uh, deaths per million or whatever. Florida is doing 10 percent worse than California. If you adjust for age, I'm sure that even that differential goes away. But again, look at how they've moved the goalposts. I'm sure Matt Iglesias in September of 2020 was not saying if Florida opens up, it's going to be 10% worse yeah. than everywhere else. Right? <laughs> yeah. Dr. Osterholm said it's going to be like a house on fire. Yeah, exactly. Andy Slavitt said something similar that it's not going to work. They didn't learn their lesson from New York. You know, Fauci was saying it's very concerning that they were opening up and they were asking for trouble by doing it. These are direct quotes. And yeah, that, that's been one of my key goals is to point out that the people that are, are getting the most media attention and kind of leading our response and telling us what to do and creating these guidelines they're wrong all the time. I mean, frequently. And it's, you know, not everybody's going to be right every single time. I don't expect that, but they should be right more often than I am seemingly. Right. And and they're not, they're wrong all the time. And, you know, I, I pull, I do this with, you know, Los Angeles public health where they're a month ago. They're like, Oh, we're going to have the variants they are going to cause another surge. You know, that first it was Florida reopening. Now it was Georgia reopening back in, in April of last year. And then it's variants now. And they come up with these excuses to continue restrictions and then they're immediately proven wrong and there's no revisiting of it. And that's been my goal is to, is to revisit it because nobody else is willing to do it. You know, and the mainstream media really. And it's with Florida, it's if these measures were so important and Florida basically got rid of them and we've seen video proof of people in Florida not complying with, with the mandates, they should be number one, right? They should have immediately skyrocketed and gone up, not just like you say, been average and they're, they're below the national average in mortality. And yeah. especially when you consider their age, like you say, it should have been, skyrocketing past New York. And not only did it not do that, they've had better results than a lot of the places that locked down and, and, and whatnot, and especially with California, because over that period from September until now, California put in another stay at home order. I mean, we closed all outdoor dining, let alone indoor dining. And not only did it, you know, not Florida not get worse, California did much worse, you know, and, and it's just, there's no questioning of whether or not any of that actually mattered, considering what you say, Florida is the one that should have been number one and they're not. Uh, yeah. So just in my own world of, uh, cycling, bike racing during this whole time, there was, you know, uh, Europe started to do different things and bike racing over in certain countries and there, and then Texas, 
uh, and and to see the the journalists on. So I only I have two Twitters basically. One's all cycling related. The other one's all politics, and I keep them separate. Um, and the the cycling one is just a it's it's just lefties. It's just crazy shit. And they were dire predictions. All these deaths we're gonna see. And of course, you know, um, th- those things never came came about. Uh, shocking results even to you, Ian. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you've done, but is there anything where even you looked at the results and said, this is even crazier than I thought? The, the Czech Republic is a good one because it's, I mean, not, not that I ever thought that Matt Porter was effective and that's why their numbers were low, but it's one thing to be, to have the number, the very, very low numbers and go from that to number one in the world. Yeah, that, that was shocking to me. And, you know, not that it's any fault of their own, obviously, that's not my point, but it's, it's just, it was kind of surprising that not only were the experts and all the articles and all the praise of the Czech Republic for mask wearing wrong, but it was wrong at literally number one in the world. That that was pretty stunning. Um, and I've done a lot of local counties where I go into it not knowing what the answer is going to be, where I, I just see a news story that somebody sends me and it's like, oh, well, in this Arizona county, this place mandated masks and this one removed it in a similar time period. And then I check what happened afterwards. And almost every single time, the place that removed the masks is doing better. At first, it was kind of surprising, not because I, did, I thought masks were working, but because I, the consistency that it continued to happen was surprising. But now it's it's kind of turned where I'm like, yeah, no, it's there's no difference and it's going to come out this way. And, you know, I did it with all the U.S. states a while ago and it comes out with no difference. And, and then Florida, all the counties in Florida that had mask mandates and, and not and all the ones that didn't have mandates were doing better. And I think one other quick thing was that it was it's surprising how closely they mirror each other's you know curves, like the, the rates go up and go down at the same time, regardless of what you do, if you're in the same area. And that was kind of surprising me when I first saw it, you know, four or five months ago, whatever it was, that. If you're in the same area, you follow the same curve. There's nothing you can do about it across state lines. You know, I did one with the D.C. metro area, and there's, you know, you have three separate jurisdictions, you know, Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., and they're in the exact same curve with the same exact numbers, regardless of what they close or when. Um, and when I started to notice that pattern, that kind of surprised me. And now it doesn't, but, but at the time it definitely did. Fantastic. Okay, uh, we'll keep moving on to the next one. I just accidentally deleted the one I wanted to have, so I'm going to have to bring it back up here. And it's going to be Gary Chartier. So, oh, by the way, the Ian one, uh, I just think it's it's good to, once again, to, to go back, to remember kind of those things. And, and, you know, for me, it's been really great to see a lot of things. And some stuff with Tom, it's evergreen. You know, it's, it's you're learning something uh, like these next ones are going to be. <clears throat> but some of that else is, is like the Ian stuff, the, the COVID that was so significant that it's good to kind of remind yourself that at the time, was Tom right? A lot of people were right. Okay. Will, Will Chamberlain. Okay, this one's uh, Gary Chartier, and it is Christianity and the State. I just thought this was a really interesting, um, God commands you to obey the state. You know, um, we've got some of these questions, and some people are saying, you know, Jesus is a socialist. Of course, then I there's a, <laughs> I have it ready to go for that, and it's a part of the Bible where it talks about uh, uh, Jesus kicking out um, tax collectors and other no- notorious sinners. So I'm like, oh, well, collecting taxes is considered a notorious sin. Okay. Uh, this goes to a non-Christian that all of a sudden in 2021, you figured out that actually, even though this looks like a, a verse about supporting the state, it's the exact opposite. It just seems like special pleading to me. So how do you deal with, let's say, some of the harder verses that, that seem to indicate that the state is an important part of a flourishing society? You know, I think you're absolutely right that no, no intellectual engagement with the Christian tradition that, you know, so it, that ignores what really seems to be going on in individual biblical passages or in, in later, you know, Christian texts is responsible, right? I mean, I think, I think you can't, 
begin with the assumption that uh, what you find uh, in a text is just a convenient confirmation of what you what you already thought. You have to, I think, try to grapple with what's going on. So Romans 13, I think you're right, is obviously the uh, Lovis classicus of these of these discussions with uh, uh, St. Paul's injunction to, uh, you know, be subject to the authorities. And it seems as if, right, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. And of course, that passage has received a great deal of attention from people who aren't in any way libertarians, particularly, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that it was, I think, used say, in the 30s, to tell Germans that they really ought to be uh, obedient to the Nazi regimes. And naturally, in the wake of World War II, in that kind of language, people uh, revisited it pretty carefully because there was, you know, certainly the desire not to be focused on things that way, not to, not to interpret it that way. Yeah, Romans 13 is often, I think, kind of interestingly juxtaposed with uh, Revelation 13, where the Roman Empire is viewed as a ravenous beast. And uh, by contrast, in Romans 13, St. Paul, who is, of course, a Roman citizen, you know, while he's sometimes encountered the, the bad side of the empire, really has had in general a pretty, it seems like a pretty positive relationship with it, uh, wants to uh, to focus on it that way. So it seems as if what he's fundamentally saying, you know, perhaps the, the reading that's most kind of favorable to uh, the sort of approach that, uh, that you and I might want to take is maybe one that says, look, what he's fundamentally concerned about is the importance of maintaining social order and of seeing justice done. And in the immediate moment in which he's writing, it certainly looks as if the Roman Empire is the entity that's available to do that, right? He's not uh, contemplating, it seems to me, he's not reacting to and probably isn't even considering the possibility that there might be, first of all, a more liberal state or even no state at all providing those kinds of, uh, of things. You know, it seems to me he doesn't want Want, obviously, to encourage the uh, congregants to whom he's writing to um, either for their own sake or for the sake of other Christians to get into conflict with the state, to become, uh, you know, like many of his fellow Jews uh, at the time, uh, kind of active and potentially violent opponents of the state. And at the same time, I think he, he really does believe we need social order, we need a system of justice, and uh, the empire is, uh, is providing that. So let's accept that and, you know, take advantage of it. Now, he clearly doesn't think that uh, the empire is behaving uniformly well. Uh, we know, for instance, in uh, I think it's in the Corinthian correspondence, where uh, you know he really wants the early Christians to uh, resolve disputes within congregations, and really thinks it's it's shameful if they resort to the empire's courts. So he's not uh, unaware, I think, of some problems with uh, the legal system uh, and so forth at the time. But at the same time, it seems to me I take it uh, probably a, a fairly pragmatic view that uh, encourages people to uh, recognize what he thinks at the moment is the positive role that the, the empire is playing. You know, it's kind of ironic because I, I take it, he ends up, uh, of course, being being executed by the empire. And we think about the picture of the empire, again, that's experienced by elsewhere in the ancient Mediterranean, like, uh, you know, the recipients of the letters to the churches uh, in, in Revelation. They're clearly experiencing uh, the empire in a very different way. But at least for the moment, at the heart of the empire, where Paul's writing, after all, from Rome itself, later, and uh, here, two Christians in Rome, focusing there, you know, the, the empire seems like it's serving a useful purpose, and I think he's just kind of prepared to accept that. Okay, so Gary can can go on. So he's kind of the uh, like Bob Woods, where they, the, it's easy for them to just. But uh, I thought this was a, an interesting concept, and to to take it on because you don't want to you want to get beat over the head by by everybody, and this is uh, another good one. So, um, I and by the way, Chartier, I think he's a really interesting guy. First of all, I, he actually teches at a university that I know of. I've had friends that go there at La Sierra University in Southern California, <clears throat> down by. Loma Linda, Red, Redlands, uh, Riverside area. Uh, anyway, La Sierra area, <laughs> the, the Inland Empire, I think they call it down there. Uh, and so anyway, it, let's hear a little bit about his uh, view because he went to the seminary. I don't know if he's law as well or history, but um, anyway, let's keep going. On 
economic and you know, related matters when I talked about them, indeed, in the first edition of that 2007 book I did, but the, the broader theological context, I think, didn't change. I think it was really, I think the economic uh, views just sort of developed on their own and developed with the view that, you know, this is just the way sensible people think about these matters. It wasn't that there was some kind of careful development of those economic views from the underlying theological views. And so I think the theological views really, if you look at, say, the two editions of that book, The Analogy of Love, I don't think the theology is particularly different even as the, even as the economics uh, might have changed. So, yeah, I don't, that's, you know, I think it's probably the case just that I, uh, I refined the ethical theory views that I took, but in terms of seeing how those fit together with uh, economic understanding, I think that just involved developing better economic understanding, which seemed perfectly compatible with the underlying core perspective that I adopted. Uh, maybe I want to say more with more time, but I, I bet there are other things we should talk about. Yeah, and I think he's described himself as a former left libertarian or former lefty. Uh, either way, uh, we'll keep going here. They talk a little bit more about the Romans uh, 13 part. So we'll say Romans 13 part do. And Gary. I'm going to give myself one point for that. I want to go back actually and just say one other quick thing about Romans 13. Because couldn't somebody say, let's say at the time of the war in Iraq in 2003, mm-hmm. that the people who supported Saddam Hussein were also doing the right thing because they were supposed to support the powers that be there. Well, that's mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein. So it's almost like it, it explains too much. It means that everybody has to support everything. Well, so then if there are two countries at war, apparently you can't blame either one of them. Yeah, so I wonder how somebody who took a more uh, conventionally status view of that passage would respond. I mean, I can imagine a neocon saying something like this there, right? Well, but if you look at the underlying purpose that uh, St. Paul envisions in Romans 13, Saddam wasn't fulfilling that purpose. And so therefore, uh, I see, I see. Okay. I would guess that that's probably how that person would respond. You know, that we're in fact bearing the sword for the whole world. I mean, which is obviously a deeply troubling notion, but I think that would have been the idea that, you know, Saddam isn't another equally valid bearer of the sword. Saddam is precisely one of those baddies the bearers of the sword have to uh, punish and uh, his uh, own subjects surely recognize that. Okay. All right. That's a, that's a reasonable answer. And I I would want to try to anticipate what their objection to that would be. Okay. That's, that's fair enough. I, yes, I think it's fair enough, but then you're, you're still making a value judgment on, uh, everybody's, you know, is which, what, which state is more moral than the other state. Uh, so it's, look, it's, we do this all the time in law, especially with what I do. Family law, you run one side of the case one time, you're on one other side of the case at a time. So it's always, for me, it's easy to always try to anticipate what those arguments are doing. And I'm always putting that back to my client. Okay. But anyway, so I, I do love the argumentation portion of having good, um, not just setting up a straw man, because I thought that was a great example Tom gave. Okay, let's go passivism, uh, and then we're done with Gary Chartier. And I guess one thing I've always wondered, now our friend Bob Murphy is a pacifist, yes. and he is, I, I debated him on pacifism, and I lost. <laughs> so he's good at it. <laughs> he's good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but he's really thought about it deeply. But I respect Bob for a lot of reasons, but I also respect his view on this, because he really is consistent. He, he is uh, completely against the state, and I think if you're really going to be a pacifist, it can't just be I'm against war, because if what you're against is violence, then you can't say, well, I'm against war, but, you know, we really, really need these subsidies for, you know, renewable energy or something. So we're going to have to crack some skulls for that. You know, that it seems like if you're against violence, you got to be against violence the whole way. And, and maybe some of the blind spot there is that we're not exactly raised to look at the state as being an engine of violence, are we? We're looking at the state as an engine of justice. So we don't I don't think we even think of it that way. I think that's really helpful. And, um, you know, so maybe I didn't say this. I put this topic on our agenda for this week in part because I'm writing a book on this topic right now, writing a book called The Theology of the Nation State. And uh, it's been interesting to grapple with 
thinkers who are in that kind of broad uh, radical reformation tradition and notice I think this phenomenon that you're you're talking about, that even people who are very much aware of the corrupt and violent nature of the state can seem too willing to say, well, but of course, lots of things the state does, uh, you know, really can be separated out from uh, these acts of violence. And I want to say, well, actually, no, because that that threat of violence, uh, criminal punishment for those who don't go along, and of course, criminal punishment for those who don't provide financial support, that's always lurking in the background. So I think I do think that those who are, who are full-on pacifists uh, need to be less sanguine probably about uh, about state action there. You know, I'm, again, as I've said before, kind of very much on these matters in the broad uh, Aristotelian Thomas tradition. I want really, really robust limits on everybody's use of force, especially because it's especially dangerous on the state, right? If we're going to have a state, I think we need to argue for radical limits on what the state does. But that doesn't mean I'm a pacifist. I end up, I think, agreeing with the pacifists much of the time on practical matters, but I'm not there with them. But I think if they are going to take the position they do, then it seems to me uh, they need to be to be much more critical, I think, of various sorts of state action than perhaps sometimes they might be. What's interesting to me is, I, you know, I've moved my opinions a lot on uh, libertarian stuff, uh, just in general, uh, since I've come into the libertarian movement, uh, not become a pacifist. Uh, probably never will. I understand that. Uh, now let's first not, go over say, who this is either. The non-aggression principle and all that. But um, yeah, you're, if you're going to aggress, I'm going to come back at you. So, um, okay. This one, it came back in the news not too long ago because this person uh, is crazy. Um, this is a uh, Rebecca Jones. And you may remember her. This is called 1899 episode. The phony story about Florida fudging its COVID numbers. This lady, Tom does just a reading, uh, I think Charles C.W. Cook story. I just, I think that's who it is, from what I remember. Uh, I think he writes for the National Review, at least he used to. Uh, but she came back into the news because there was something about her son being arrested for um, threatening to blow up a, or to shoot up a, a Florida school. And she said that DeSantis had him arrested without a warrant and some other things. But she's a real piece of shit. Uh, so let's talk about this one here. Or listen to this one. Um, who is Rebecca Jones? Tom Woods, tell us. Rebecca Jones was. She's the former dashboard manager for the Florida Department of Health website. And she has clearly gone out of her way to misrepresent her position and the powers she had. She did not have the ability to change any numbers. She didn't have that kind of access. So even... Before, he, maybe he doesn't say it because I skipped into this. She basically was a whistleblower and type of... That's how she portrayed herself and said she was fired for trying to be enforced to fudge the numbers. Uh, and here's more of the truth about it. But if she was informed that she had to do this, she couldn't do it, which is why she wouldn't have been told to do such a thing because that had nothing to do with her job. On her own separate dashboard that she runs now, the data she cites are identical to those of the government of Florida. It's simply the way she organizes the numbers. Even there, as we'll see, she's wrong that the authorities in Florida are actually correct. So she accused Florida's deputy secretary of health of being a liar, fraud, and murderer. And so her overall claim is that she was fired because of a refusal to participate in a cover-up of the true numbers of what's going on in Florida with regard to COVID, and that her home was raided, guns were pointed at her children, and this is all because of her commitment to the truth. Now, Cook says that when you look at Rebecca Jones's personnel file, you find not only that there was no cover-up, but that the agency had done everything they could to de-escalate the situation with her, and that from the beginning, it had been their practice just to indulge her. Even in her very hiring, they knew that she had completed what's called a pretrial intervention program in Louisiana in 2018, 
whereby she was able to secure a no conviction record for a battery of a police officer. And they also knew that she had entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the state of Florida in 2017 after being charged with criminal mischief. They hired her anyway. Now, somebody with a record like that would not have been hired for a particularly important role. And she was not hired for a particularly important role. She was just supposed to run a website. Cook says, with the enthusiastic help of the press, Rebecca Jones has unremittingly inflated the prominence of the position she held. And yet when one reads through the FDOH documents, that's Florida Department of Health, that chronicle the affair, one is struck by how dull and unheroic the whole thing really was. There are no whistleblowers anywhere in this story. There is no scandal. There is no grand fight for truth or justice. There's just a replacement-level government employee who repeatedly breaks the rules, who is repeatedly mollycoddled while doing so, and who is fired only when she eventually renders herself unworthy of the department's considerable grace. All right. Okay. And by the way, that this is a great breakdown. And, and I think it's important because you saw her. There's so many things. And this full episode does break it down. But let's keep going here. Tom describes how Rebecca copied the data, locked people out of the dashboard, and was ordered to turn over everything. Then a change in her story. Okay. We're going to get... Let's bring this up here. Sorry. Episode 1899. Tom Woods. Uh, change in her story. This initial story was not that she was ordered to fudge the numbers. The Associated Press back in May 2020 said that she had not alleged, quote, any tampering with data on deaths, hospital symptom surveillance, hospitalizations for COVID-19, numbers of new confirmed cases, or overall testing rates. And that she even acknowledged that, quote, Florida has been relatively transparent. So why did she not initially make these allegations? Because as Cook points out, obviously she wasn't in a senior enough position to have been able hmm. to make changes to the data. She didn't have the ability to edit the raw data as the manager of the dashboard. There were only a handful of people in the whole state with permission to touch that information. She wasn't one of them. Every day she was given a copy of the data and it was her job to upload it into the system. So if she had decided to alter that, everyone would have seen that immediately. Now, why has not a single person in the Florida Department of Health sided with her? Not one other person is gonna point out that one of the greatest scandals in American history has just occurred, that a state Department of Health has tried to cover up numbers in a pandemic? Not one person? Or how about why hasn't there been some New York Times expose on the whole thing? And the answer is because there's no story. She didn't build the data system, which is her claim now. She's not a data manager. Her job was to export other people's work, to export data over which she had no control and to put it up nicely on the state dashboard. And remember on her rebel dashboard that she's set up thanks to money she's gotten from gullible leftists, she admits that she used the Department of Health's data. If you access the data from both sources, she says, you'll see that it is identical. All she's doing is displaying them differently. So what exactly is she doing with the data? Like, What's the big deal here? If the numbers are all basically okay, then what's the problem? She's complaining that the Department of Health is not processing the data the way it would be processed if she were in charge. But why would it do that? She has no expertise in this area. Her complaints are not valid. She's saying that Florida is hiding deaths because... In its headline numbers, it's not including non-residents, but it does report those deaths. It just reports them separately, which is what the CDC asks them to do. She's claiming that Florida's excess death number is suspicious. But as Cook says, that too has been rigorously debunked by pretty much everyone who understands what excess deaths means in an epidemiological context, including by the CDC, by Daniel Weinberger, an epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health, by Lauren Rossin, a statistician at the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, and most notably by Jason Salemi, an epidemiologist at the University of South Florida, who having gone to the trouble of making a video explaining calmly why the talking point was false, was then bullied off Twitter by Jones and her followers. 
So look, this person, I keep, I, I've seen this in the last year or so, uh, multiple references. They talk about DeSantis and this will come up more about him fudging numbers or forcing something uh, to do it. And, and remember this, remember this Tom Woods thing. And, and the last thing we'll do here, one last clip from this one. Uh, this is a real dirtbag manifesto. Let's go for it here. He's the aggrieved party. So she wrote in 2019, a 342-page manifesto in which she portrays herself as the injured one, even in passages where she's talking about engaging with an ex-boyfriend after violating a no-contact order, damaging his car, harassing his mother. She portrays herself as the victim in the parts in which she talks about how she was fired from FSU, Florida State University, for having sex with a student in her office and lying to her employer about her criminal record. He says, everywhere Jones goes, whether it's Louisiana State University, Florida State, or the Florida Department of Health, she seems always to leave a trail of wreckage, and somehow it's always someone else's fault. There you go. So uh, it goes into great detail about all that. Uh, yes, that's 1899. Check that one out because that lady is still in the news, and Tom did a great job of reading and talking about a story from uh, Charles C. You answer the— uh... Easy there. Uh, the next one we're doing here is uh, the tr- uh, episode 1933, The Truth About Jack- Antifa by Jack Posobiec. Uh, look, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Jack. I blocked him on Twitter because he's just annoying. Um, <clears throat> he's just uh, stupid. I, I don't know. There's just something about him, Charlie Kirk, Will Chamberlain, these guys. They're just, they feel like the grift style. But he came on here. Tom let him grift on his show. To, uh, talked about his book. And um, I thought it was at least interesting. Uh, so, we'll t- and by the way, I was in- it's always interesting when you hear people kind of like mock the libertarian thing, but yet then they'll go on like Tom Woods, they'll talk and they, they've had conversations, so they know things about it. We've talked about this with Michael Knowles and his uh, debate or co- long conversations with Michael Malice. And then he goes in on Tim Pool and acts like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay. Um, Antifa, what is it? Uh, it's you stupid rubes. You don't even understand it. It's just an idea. Well, I find it very interesting, right, you know, that there's this sort of the knee-jerk mainstream response on the left, and a lot of the neoliberals will respond to this by saying it's just an idea. I would say, like, yeah, an idea, like white supremacism or radical Islam or separatism or, to, you know, take your pick. There's lots of extremist ideas out there, certainly, right? We are talking about an extremist ideology that drives people to violence through small networks and groups that have centered around that idea. So, yes, of course, it's an extremist ideology. I completely agree with you. That's usually how I respond. And that kind of stops them in their tracks when they realize that calling it just an idea is kind of the same thing they talk about all the time, right? You know, the left is actually obsessed with talking about ideas and extremism when they can point it out or tie their political opponents to it. But when it's something that's a little bit closer to home, they try to just kind of paper over it and move along. Uh, I've honestly never encountered like a leftist like that when you, you, you I, and I come up with this one phrase and it stops them in their tracks. No, it doesn't. They they don't really care about fa- as as uh, Ben Shapiro loves to say. Facts don't care about f- your feelings or whatever. So maybe it's along the same lines. Uh, let's keep going here. Um, when did Antifa take hold? In its current form, where and when did we first see Antifa taking shape? Would you say? Sure. So you're absolutely right that this is a phenomenon that really gets its start in Germany, uh, Western Europe, certainly during the the Cold War. That's when it's really being inculcated even further. Then. In the United States, the first time you see kind of 
some flashes of it are during the early run-up to the first Iraq war, the first Gulf War. You see the Black Bloc taking place in Washington, D.C. And then later, you see it again really blow onto the scene in 1999 and what they refer to as the Battle of Seattle. And that was the yep. anti-globalization protests and riots that took place in Seattle in 1999, the World Trade Organization. And almost ironically, it was over the inclusion of China in the World Trade Organization. Then you fast forward a decade past that, you get what? The Occupy movement. So Zuccotti Park, Occupy Wall Street, which spread to 56 countries around the globe. This Occupy movement, that was sort of the modern birth of the Antifa that we see today. However, the Antifa of today doesn't, interestingly enough, talk about or focus on economic issues as much as the Occupy movement did. Typically, the Antifa you see of today is focused much more on racial issues, social issues, historical issues, and uh, cultural issues by and large. I remember the whole stuff up in Seattle uh, that disturbed me a lot because I was quite the the right winger. And um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> okay, so we're, we'll do another one here. This one is once again the truth about Antifa, episode nineteen thirty three with Jack Posobiec. Uh, Berlin's Wall name used in Germany. What is that? What are you talking about, Tyler? Well, you know the Berlin Wall, right? The Berlin Wall. Everybody knows the Berlin Wall that separated East and West Berlin during the Cold War. That's what we called it here in the West. But do you know what they actually called it and what they referred it to in official Of course, documents? it's the anti-fascist barrier. The <laughs> anti-fascist barrier. So again, that gives you, it's a propaganda term of art used by communists to smear their opponents. And the key point here is it has always been a communist turn of phrase, a piece of propaganda since its very inception. Yeah, that is an excellent point. That is an excellent point. So we shouldn't be surprised if in 2020 and 2021, we hear it used in exactly that way. And it boggles your mind because you look at it through the lens of history and we say, wait a minute, you mean Antifa even back at the start when when actually Adolf Hitler was around, they were still being told to go after the Democrats and the establishment parties, not the actual rise. And here's what they would say is they would say, well, we think those guys are going to take over, but they'll fail. And after Hitler, it'll be our turn. That's literally what they used to say. Oh, boy. And you can imagine what happened to most of the leaders of the original Antifa. I probably don't even need to say it. And now, I, I will say this, um, by the way, which is uh, totally correct. There's a lot of this that you can uh, totally agree with, but there is also a lot of like fear porn that the the right types like to to do. We see that all the time. China, um, chocolate, coffee, uh, underwear, they <laughs> target. Uh, and some of it's legit, and then some of it you mix in here and you get uh, Soviet um, trying to have you all concerned about uh, Antifa, maybe? Maybe rightly so. Maybe read his book and find out if he's full of crap. Okay, this one we're going to do. Tom Woods, uh, episode 2000. He has a big party. We're going to play a few little things here. I thought we'd play the uh, the open um, and because it's by uh, Dr. Ron Paul and Jeff Deist, Tom Woods. 2000 and a bunch of our buddies went to this thing you know that right tower gang and all them they got crazy there welcome to the 2000th episode of the tom woods show it's my pleasure to introduce to you your host for the evening my former chief of staff and now president of the mises institute jeff dice former I wish I would have been able to go, but other side of the country. Thank you very much. 
Welcome. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining Tom tonight in this celebration of himself. So, you know, over the years, I've had the good fortune to meet a lot of incredible people. I met the late Murray Rothbard before he died. I've gotten to know Ron Paul. I know Lou Rockwell. I know Hans Hermann Hoppe. I've had the good fortune to meet people like David Stockman and James Grant and billionaires. And one time on Capitol Hill, I even got to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So I've been in the same room as some incredibly accomplished and brilliant people. Now, this is not one of those rooms. <laughs> But, uh, you know, okay. uh, look, I, I, I do have a story. I, I went to uh, Brian Adams when I was in college. Uh, he was I, Walla Walla. That's where I was, went to college, a little college town. Uh, and just an hour away, there's this town, Tri-Cities, a little bit bigger, three rich in Pasco and Kennewick. Uh, and I go out there and there was a Brian Adams concert. He'd been there like all week doing this or go there with some friends. And um, he's doing this you know, concert and he's does a thing kind of like that. He's like, you know, I've been to, and he starts naming all these places, foreign countries and cities. And he's like, and they were good, uh, but you guys, and everyone's like, ah, you're ready to hear them say, you know, but you guys are amazing. He goes, you're nothing special. And then boom, he just <laughs> goes into the next song. I just thought it was such an awesome troll. It was, it was pretty uh, fantastic. Uh, Jeff Diced pulling out the, the troll, like, uh, like Brian Adams? Is that, is that really what we're doing? Okay, uh, hang on. So all that. Okay, so Tom, uh, Brian, uh, Brian uh, Jeff Deist, intro of Tom Woods here. Uh, take it away, Jeff Deist. Oh, shoot. Let's reset this. Yeah, Doc, uh, you weren't. You were okay. Okay. So all that said, I'm going to introduce the man you all came to see tonight, the man who is in love with himself, wow. that tiny, tiny man, Tom Woods. Wow. Wow, so people did show up after all. Thank God. <laughs> all right, listen, first of all, thank you all very much for being here. It's, you know, these sorts of things can be fun and interesting, but this has a special significance, I think, because of what we spent the last 18 months enduring. And so for us all to be here together, enjoying a moment like this, takes on extra significance. And so um, I feel obligated, though, at the very beginning to tell you that as we record what will eventually be released as the 2000th episode of the show, um, this is going to be very different from other episodes of the Tom Woods Show. I like to build these as educational episodes. You know, you learn something, you become a smarter libertarian in 30 minutes a day, right? Ladies and gentlemen, nobody in this room is going to learn a damn thing tonight. There you go. Not going to learn a damn thing. Uh, we're going to play one more clip. By the way, there's, there's to online, there's two uh, nights of this or two clips of this. Parts. Sorry, there's two parts to this. Uh, the next one, though, we'll play up here is um, Scott Horton. He did. Uh, I just thought this was a, an interesting side. He actually mentions Michael Malice, so we'll go right into it. Scott Horton. Uh, you know, other people were Angela McArdle spoke, Doc Dixon performed, Michael Malice spoke at one point, and there was disturbance in the crowd. They thought it was one of the Tower Gang, but it wasn't, or was it? Which brings me to the extremely successful show host and author and President Smith press secretary designate Michael Malice. 
Where's Michael? You know, these two had a beef, so this was important. As you all know, other than his devotion to the murderous ethno-religious supremacist Israeli apartheid state in historic <laughs> Palestine, Michael Malice is one of the most prominent promoters of anarchy in the world. So that's pretty good. We all have our blind spots, I guess. But you know, Michael, it's been four years since our big Twitter fight over the former MI6 asset in Libya and Syria who attacked the pop concert in Manchester, England, which, for some reason, you blamed on Islam instead of the Anglicans. But I'm sorry. I overreacted. I never should have started that whole fight. But I'm over it now. I'll unmute you. Huh. Plus, they say you're in Austinite now. Goddamn gentrifying carpetbaggers, I'll tell you what. <laughs> but now that we're friends again, I'll take you out on the lake and feed you some barbecue. We do brisket different and better in Texas. All right, so he buried the hatchet there. All fine and dandy. Good job. <laughs> uh, good job, uh, Scott Horton. Uh, there you go. And Michael Mall. And, you know, since then, I've heard that they've, uh, they've done stuff together. They've been in the same room having conversations. Malice has actually talked to him uh, or talked about him on his podcast. So, okay, let's keep going on. Tom Woods. Uh, that was episode 2000. We're going to skip right up to 2031. The Forgotten Old Right, Jeff Deist, has Tom Woods on his show, Human Action Podcast, which is uh, no longer with Jeff Deist. It's with, uh, what's his name now? Uh, Bob Murphy. I think he's taking it over. Anyway, um, doesn't matter, but we're going to play this in here because they talk about the old right uh, and some interesting Rothbard stuff. So we will take it on. The old right, episode 2031, Jeff Deist. Uh, but Tom Woods gets featured. He features himself on this, uh, which he's featured on with Jeff Dice. I don't know if you understand that, but here we go. Uh, what is this one? Uh, conservative is conservative education. Conservatism wow. Inc. has done a terrible job educating people in its grasp, let's say, of their own history. Because I don't even think they're trying. Or they're trying to teach a history where it begins with Buckley. So that's the kind of result you get. I'll never forget being on... Some of the oldsters will remember that Fox News used to have a program called Hannity and Combs, and it pitted yep. Sean Hannity up against the token left liberal on the show who's since died. And uh, I went on to promote the politically incorrect guide to American history. And Hannity told me on the air that he had never before heard of a basically a free market criticism of the New Deal. He had never heard of this. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, you're supposed to be one of the most prominent radio and television hosts of Conservatism, Inc. And you've never I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but you've never even heard of it. And of course, he's operating in a milieu in which people like Newt Gingrich and others say that FDR was one of our great presidents. I mean, even Ronald Reagan said that. So, look, if people like that can't acknowledge that there might be a problem with the New Deal, then, yeah, how do I expect a dope like Sean Hannity to know about it? So that's a major, major issue. I mean, these, these people were and, – and here we're talking about – you mentioned Garrett Garrett, but there's also, as you say, Frank Chodorov, John T. Flynn. John T. Flynn is somebody who's worth reading who around – I think it was 1948 – published The Roosevelt Myth, which was a treatment – of Roosevelt all around, like all his policies. And it's the kind of book that none of these people would have the guts to write today. They would write books about, uh, like I, right-wingers were writing books about Bill Clinton, alleging that he was corrupt. And look at this, look at Filegate. And what, who the heck, I don't even remember what Filegate was, you know, but this is the sort of thing. Oh, I can tell you what Filegate was. It was <laughs> uh, FBI files, I think, in the White House about, anyway, maybe that was Travelgate. But no, I think Filegate was some of that too. Uh, doesn't matter. Um, Interesting stuff. I just thought it was interesting. I, Curtis Yarbin, Yarbin, Yarbin had uh, been on with uh, the Young Turks, uh, the big fat guy there. And um, he made some comment about how the right just, uh, they loved FDR. They never made, said anything bad about him. 
And I, I, just, I was like, I posted something out there. I'm like, you know, is he drunk? I, I, I growing up as, you know, conservative and family and they, they hated FDR. I don't understand this, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if Hannity is saying those kind of things, uh, maybe I am wrong. I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, let's keep going here. Tom Woods on Jeff Dice's show, feature Tom a little bit. Betrayal of the American Right, Rothbard, and why reprint it. Um, do I have that book here? I don't have it with me. Nope. Radical opposition to the whole New Deal and later the Great Society was actually substantive and intelligent and erudite at one point. For people who haven't read much or know much, about the old right. You can probably start with the betrayal of the American right. Rothbard's great book published originally in the early 90s, although he wrote much of it in the 1970s. We actually did a show on it a while back with Tho Bishop and Patrick Newman. So go find that, go check that out. But Tom, in about 2007, you were asked to write an introduction to a reprint of the book by the Mises Institute. So how did, how did that come about? How, why were you asked to do so? Well, first of all, it wasn't really a reprint. The book had never been published before. What happened was, as, as you know, after Rothbard died, so much was discovered in the archives. We could just keep publishing the guy and publishing him and publishing him. For example, we found this amazing monograph, like 80 pages or something, on Wall Street banks and American foreign policy. And Justin Raimondo wrote a forward to that. The Mises Institute published that. And he had written that for some obscure newsletter, you know, like investment newsletter or something that almost nobody read. It was this huge treatise almost. And it was largely unread. So that was brought up. So this was one of the things that was brought out, this manuscript that had circulated. A lot of people had read and Rothbard had come very close to publishing it from time to time. And then he would hold back and not do it. But a lot of people had read it privately. And uh, it was thought that now is the time, because when you read this book, although it is a history of this period of the American right, it's the closest thing to a Rothbard autobiography that we'll ever get. So that also made it interesting, you know, with his having died, this is this is what we're going to get. So I was given the manuscript and it had quite a few. Well, I remember it was quite a few, but it's certainly a decent number of things crossed out that Rothbard with his own hand had crossed it that he didn't want to say. Like, for example, he would, he would make a snide remark about somebody or a movement, and then he would cross that snide remark out. Like, maybe his, he had softened on those people since then. And I had somebody recommending to me that I should keep the crossouts in, you know, just undo the crossouts and put them in. And I refused to do that because I felt like that would be defying his wishes. If I crossed something out in a manuscript and somebody published it, I would consider that a, its own kind of betrayal. So I didn't do that. So it was my job to go through, though, and with all the crossouts and whatever, and put this together as something, you know, as coherent and to write the introduction to it, because I had written a little bit about the old right. And up to this point, the major book on it really was Justin Raimondo's book, Reclaiming the American Right, which is a very good book published by the Center for Libertarian Studies around 1993. That was really great. But it was not written by somebody who had actually lived it, who had known Frank Chodorov personally in the heat of things, who had been expelled from National Review, basically for being a non-interventionist during the early Cold War. Okay, there you go. I thought that was, uh, anyway, a lot of, lot of, by the way, I love that book. It was, uh, for me, pretty pretty instrumental because it was one of the first ones I got. Um, and then I actually listened to it, uh, the, the book on tape or whatever, the podcast type of format that the Mises Institute puts out. Uh, Rothbard, uh, talk about his book, uh, Ethics of Liberty. Is it back there? I do have Ethics of Liberty. It might be at my office. Okay, let's take it away, Tom a full show on Rothbard's book, The Betrayal of the American Rights. So you can go back and find that if you're interested in it. But I suggest you read it. It's If you're only going to read one thing about the old right, rather than seeking out all these talents individually, that would be the one. And Tom, I just want to leave that book with the quote from it that I reread last night. And this is Rothbard. One thing the old right specialized in was anti-establishment muckraking. And you know now you bring up COVID policy is sort of the new Cold War, the new boogeyman of the day to replace the Soviet Union or the global war on terror, whatever the thing is today. And I thought 
when I read that, the two names that immediately came to my mind were the aforementioned Glenn Greenwald and you. Over the last 24 months almost now, this COVID regime we've been living in, the vaccines, the mandates and the masks and the you know airline travel and all this stuff. We can't even convince libertarians today to be against this stuff. And yet that was the whole modus operandi of the old right. Uh, it's funny. I, I mentioned when COVID was first happening, I was like, you know, talking about war. I'm like, we, you know, trying to spread democracy around the world. I'm like, we can't, we can't even spread freedom here at home, let alone, um, you know, trying to get it over in Afghanistan or anywhere else. Uh, and then I, the ethics of liberty has a section in there. I have the Nozick uh, anarchy state and utopia back here where he takes on, he being Rothbard takes him on. I think I might've mentioned this previously, but I thought there was a section in there that I thought was possibly how you could say this is Rothbard's response to COVID. Okay. He talked about um, taking on the minimal estate and, and just the ramifications that come about from that. And assumption of the risk is really the big idea there is you can't just bumper your car, everything that is so safe. Anyway, um, that's uh, Tom Woods. Keep going here. Let's talk. The last one, Rand, Randian types exist. Musk v. Warren. What do, what do I mean by that? I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out here together. Uh, Tom Woods. Episode. Mouse with your fingertip. And 48 hours later, a bunch of stuff shows up at your door. You're actually benefiting from the vision of a billionaire named Jeff Bezos. And by the way, his company's publicly owned. So if you don't like it, you and your friends can go out and buy a big chunk of it and get a seat on the board and change things. So yes. And Tom, I would like to say this. I don't care how many tax subsidies you might get for buying a Tesla. Elon Musk has more ability and verve and human spirit in the tip, the cuticle of his pinky finger than the parasite Elizabeth Warren, who has been attacking him, will ever have in her entire godforsaken existence. So we do like to make caricatures of these people, almost Randy in caricatures. But I mean, say what you will about Elon Musk, a brilliant visionary. I mean, the world would be worse off without people like him and would be far better off without Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And, and it's why it's frustrating to me when I see libertarians saying, oh, well, they're both the same, you know, because they're both parasites in one way or another. I just think I, you must not understand what what is happening in the world today. You know, I, I mean, you just you're not understanding the story that's unfolding before your eyes, if that's your analysis. Well, I think we should wrap up the show on that note. As I said, we are going to provide some links to some of these people and their best essays at Mises.org so you can check them out. I really think the old right is the political tradition which we ought to be embracing. And I do think anarchism is contemplated within that tradition. It certainly was discussed and considered, whether you personally agree with that or not. There's a lot here. There was a right wing in this country that was once worth a damn. And I think you owe it to yourself to know about it and to understand it and read a little bit about it to make yourself a, you know, a, a more informed person and a better person. So all that said, I want to thank you, Tom, for your time today. And uh, we're going to do a few more shows on the old right before in January, we get back to some really hardcore theory and property and philosophy, probably going to embark on a lengthy, at least month long treatment of some of the uh, seminal Hoppe. Okay. And, and uh, Jeff Dice, no longer with Mises. Uh, I got his book, A Strange Liberty, Politics Drops Its Pretenses. There you go. There, there you go. Uh, I'm We'll start reading it soon. I've got a bunch of books back there. I got to finish up, uh, but he does have a podcast for the metals, uh, the place that, that talks about metals. Um, so based metals, I think it might be a good, uh, the, the name that they came up with that. Okay. We are moving right along. Um, Fiat money uh, episode 2071. This is with the, the great famous, uh, the guy I've had some trouble with. He's, he hates me. Um, uh, Safadine Amus, but, it's been removed from it's been removed from uh, YouTube. So 
we'll just have to skip it. Sorry about that. And then I was going to do episode 2145. Does intellectual property exist with uh, Stefan Consala? He's been on our show before. And I've decided to skip that one as well, partly because you've probably heard a lot of this stuff. Uh, that's fine. But I thought we'd go right because I then have been lately getting really into um, substantive due process, 14th Amendment, 9th Amendment, uh, enumerated, unenumerated rights, those kind of things. And, you know, it comes up with the Dobbs. And so Brian McClanahan and Kevin Gutsman come on for episode 2154. And it was, uh, I thought it was fantastic. By the way, Brian uh, McClanahan, please come on my show. Well, we'd love to talk to you about some of these things. Uh, let's just start off right here on the first portion, uh, the politics of the decision. And did you see it come in? Um, Gutsman talks a little bit much. He's, he's kind of the, the Murphy. So I had to selectively get him, but McClanahan does a great job and jealous of his uh, radio voice. Yes. Recognized as one of the most transformational moments in Supreme court history, even in a number of cases that were just decided in June, people are going to look back at this point and say, wow, we're witnessing something that we, as you said, we haven't really seen before. And I think that you're right. Politically, originalists have never been able, never decided they were going to do anything like this. And I think that's what's shocking to the left. They always relied upon the fact that the conservatives were just going to be spineless, essentially. And when they're finally not, it sends shockwaves. And I do think that there was a tremendous amount of fundraising that could go on because the, the court would never, it was thought, well, the court's never going to return this. We'll just fundraise on this consistently. But one thing I find fascinating is that now that this has happened, you're starting to see the states. You're starting to see in the states themselves, there are judges that are knocking down these trigger laws and everything else. So this has now just been transferred to the state level where it should have been the entire time. But I do agree with you. I, I never saw this coming. I thought there's no way this is going to happen. And but now that it has happened and we're starting, Clarence Thomas is taking a, a as attacking part of the 14th Amendment, the way it's used I me, mean, that's that's amazing and tremendous. So I'm really excited about this and what could actually happen. What do you think? Uh well, well, we'll hear what Kevin thinks a little bit later on that. Uh, continuing on with these two gentlemen on this issue, 14th Amendment, Amendment analysis. Yes, we'll do just a little bit of that. And uh, Brian, by the way, Brian McClanahan, great show. And he, he does some of these breakdowns all the time. He's not an attorney, but he knows more than most. He, he, he goes straight at uh, uh, Barnett, Randy Barnett. And it's fantastic. Analysis. Well, first of all, what do you guys think of the overall reasoning that the court uses? I mean, as I say, it has to make this 14th Amendment appeal, or otherwise people will think it's not really a refutation of Roe. Well, I mean, that's a very good question. And this is why I point back to Thomas's concurring opinion on the Dobbs case. He's trying to, and I'm citing Thomas because what he's trying to do is walk a very thin line on the 14th Amendment. If you look at his opinion in the New York State Rifle and Pistol decision, which of course deals with the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment, because he brings it up. And then you look at what he says about the 14th Amendment and the Dobbs case. He's an incorporationist, but again, only an incorporationist in certain ways. And I find that that concurring opinion, I should say, with the Dobbs case fascinating because he is going after substantive due process. And in my mind, that's the first time I can think of anybody really doing that in a way that he did it. And it set everyone on fire because he basically said everything we've done for the last at least 50 years is ridiculous. I mean, the as Kevin mentioned, you know, the uh, same-sex marriage and all the issues we've looked at that are what we call the culture war issues, these are now all off the table because they shouldn't have been there to begin with. I mean, the, the court should never have gotten involved in these things, and it's a return to real federalism. So, yeah, I mean, the 14th Amendment really is the problem, and I, I find it interesting how he's trying to balance that issue out on both sides. And ultimately, in my mind, it's a disaster waiting to happen because, as Kevin points out, if you ever get another left-wing majority on the court again, and it's it's all policy to them, it's this is a policy arm of the government, they're going to go right back to using the 14th Amendment the way they did before, and we're back to square one again. So, that comes down to, you know, how we look at the court and what the court's going to do. And if these states can actually grow enough with the spine to say, this is it, we're not going to stand for this stuff anymore. But yeah, I mean, finding the authority for an abortion in the Constitution. And now the left libertarians try to do it. Of course, there's a piece of reason where they said the Ninth Amendment did this. 
The Ninth Amendment allows for it. And of course, they said that as incorporationists as they are, the Ninth Amendment applying to the states, the states can't do these things. There's all these unenumerated rights that you have, and this is one of them. And we know that because of Blackstone, we know that these the abortion procedures were not necessarily illegal until they felt the child and all this kind of stuff. So they're taking a very incorporationist position with the Ninth Amendment. And that's a bad argument, but it's an interesting argument. So again, I find all this stuff to be really exciting. If everyone follows through with Thomas and we see, as Kevin said, we see them actually be originalists. I think you could see some real dramatic changes with federal law in, in terms of what the court is willing to do and not do. Interesting part there is if you and if you understand kind of what Brian's saying, which is um, the Ninth Amendment, which basically says there's there's more rights, there's unenumerated rights, it doesn't say it really like that, that you have or everything that there's this isn't to the Constitution isn't all your right. Now, the reason they, they put that in there was simply to say, look, if you're even adding in rights like the Bill of Rights in, in general, what you're saying is there's got to be rights that are left out. Then there's an, an, a plethora, a plumbra, penumbra of rights, uh, of rights, of, not, of rights that are, um, that could be, um, you know, seen into this. So they put that in there to kind of safeguard it. But the actual, the opposite has happened. Now they've, they've done the substantive due process, Lochner cases and whatnot that, have, uh, that keep going on to allow this to happen. The 14th Amendment has a due process portion. It was the reconstruction um, after, you know, Civil War. You're basically adding some additional things, having some rights uh, applied. The, the Fifth Amendment is due process to the states. The 14th is I mean, to the feds. This 14th is to the states. And now they've incorporated all this. And basically what Brian is saying is you should wipe all that out. It never should. I mean, he says the, the, the Bill of Rights actually is a mistake. I don't think he said it in there, but he said it in other shows. Uh, what you're then saying, and he mentioned here with Thomas, which is then Second Amendment as an example, That'll, that would only be federal that you have a right to a, a gun. Uh, that's only the federal government that could that could dictate situations like that with our federal property. The states themselves, though, would have a right to um, you know, regulate guns within their own states. So he understands the ramifications of what he's saying. And he's saying Thomas is walking a fine line of trying to have it uh, two ways. And, and I at least appreciate his um, consistency on this. Uh, last one we're going to do on this one is a corporation uh, explained, which basically is saying these amendments were ratified. The 14th, as an example, was out specifically to the states, but now they've ratified it. So it's to all or that incorporated it and the same with the ninth, which basically means now these issues that were just meant for the federal government protections. Now they extend those all the way out to the states and they're going to explain it a little bit here. I think I do. Got some That's a good point. Can, can one of you explain the incorporation doctrine? Because I'm, I'm sure there's got to be, I would say, a third of the listeners who are not going to be familiar with that. Brian, you want to do it? I'll let you do it. I mean, uh, okay. I think you would do it better than me. So, <laughs> Although before you do it, let me say that when people explain the incorporation, doctrine, it sounds appealing. It can sound appealing to some people. Well, yeah, why wouldn't we want that? That does. And by the way, some of those other rights, those unenumerated rights, we could call uh, uh, fundamental, yeah, fundamental rights, such as the right to parent. Uh, so as, that's a prime example. Um, they're they're basically saying, look, the the states. Do uh, you have a First Amendment fundamental right? which goes into strict scrutiny, which basically when the court, if they don't have a compelling reason to put this law into place, uh, it's going to lose. And so you have a fundamental right as a parent to parent your kids, that, you know, days, uh, homeschool, uh, contraceptions for yourself, these kind of other things. That's not just all kids, but there's multiple kinds of fundamental rights. And, and what Brian's basically saying here is, okay, that's fine and all, but you've incorporated this. It's a, it's a made up law. It's a made up portion of the constitution 
and therefore it shouldn't be there, which you do understand some states are going to be very restrictive and you just have to be okay with that. Okay, sorry. That sounds like a good idea. So try and handle that objection after you uh, explain what it is. Okay, well, here's a two-minute version. The first 10 amendments to the Constitution and the 27th Amendment were sent to the states for their ratification by Congress in 1789 with a preamble that said, that because during the ratification campaign, various concerns had been raised about the limits or the extent of the powers that were being granted to the Congress under this new constitution, these amendments were necessary further to clarify those limits. So in other words, the preamble to the Bill of Rights said that their purpose was to clarify the limits of the powers of not only the Congress, but the federal government in general. Not only that, but the First Amendment famously begins by saying, Congress shall make no law. And when you get to the end of the Bill of Rights, the 10 that were ratified in 1791, you have the 10th Amendment, which makes this principle express. So it was generally understood through the end of the 18th and then through the 19th century into the 20th that that was true. And in fact, it wasn't even controversial. So for example, in 1833, Chief Justice John Marshall, the the great nationalist of the early republic, who never in any other case held against federal authority, wrote the opinion for the unanimous court in a case called Barron versus Baltimore. And in Barron versus Baltimore, in ruling that the Fifth Amendment takings clause was not enforceable against the city of Baltimore, what Marshall said was that everybody knew that the Bill of Rights was only a limitation on the federal government. It wasn't a limitation on states, and that included cities like Baltimore. So Mr. Barron could not be uh, given a financial award by a federal court under the Fifth Amendment takings clause. This understanding of the applicability of the first 10 amendments, or actually the first eight amendments, continued essentially through the first decade of the 20th century. But then in the second decade of the 20th century, the Supreme Court began to say that some provisions of the first eight amendments had been made enforceable against state, and that includes subordinate governments too, against state governments, by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment's due process clause says nor shall any state deny to any person the equal protection of laws or due process of law. And when they first began saying this, it was about the speech clause of the First Amendment and the press clause of the First Amendment. So you have in the first, uh, well, the second and third decades of the 20th century, some cases in which the speech and press clauses of the First Amendment are held to have been made applicable against state and local governments by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. It wasn't until even later in the 20th century that the court really dove into claiming that various other provisions of the first eight amendments were enforceable against state and local governments. And what we've come to have by now is a situation in which virtually all of them, there are only a couple that have not at this point been held to be enforceable against state and local governments. Third, I think that the claim that saying that a state could not deny any person the due process of law, the claim that that statement means that substantive provisions of the first eight amendments are enforceable against state and local governments. It's just nonsensical. There's, there's nothing in the record of the ratification of the 14th Amendment that shows that. And certainly, if you read the 14th Amendment, you don't get that out of it. If the Congress had wanted for that to be what the Fourth Amendment accomplished, they could have included a provision to that effect in the 14th Amendment, but they didn't. So I explain the burgeoning of the 14th Amendment in the second and third quarters of the 20th century by reference to the attitude of people who were justices of the Supreme Court in those days, that really the Supreme Court was another policymaking body like a House of Congress. And in fact, the chief proponent of this idea on the Supreme Court, the worst Supreme Court justice in history, was a guy named William Brennan, Justice William Brennan, 
famously or infamously in Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong's book, The Brethren, there's an account of Brennan having a conversation with a couple of his law clerks one day. And, and finally he smiled and he said to them, around here, I operate according to the rule of five. With five votes, I can do anything. And that was his attitude. He was going to make policy and he did across a wide range of areas. And most of the time, this policymaking had essentially no connection to the constitution. He just he just cobbled together majorities on the court to say that the constitution required whatever policy outcome they liked. And that's why we ended up with a counter movement from conservatives or in the Republican party saying, no, what we need to have instead is originalism. We need to have people who say that they're going to preserve and protect the constitution of the United States and mean that they're going to enforce it as it ought to be enforced by any fair reading or as people understood it was going to be enforced when they adopted a particular provision. So that's kind of a potted account of the incorporation doctrine. So it's interesting. And then Brian chimes in here. It, it, it's interesting how, how he, um, Gutsman says, oh, let me get the two minute version four minutes later. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm skipping the episode 2180. It's Mao's mass murder by Jason Jewell with him as a guest. <clears throat> it was really interesting uh, stuff about Tricoms and cultural revolution. Uh, I did touch on some of that uh, previously on one different episode. I think, um, I think when we were talking about, yes, when we were talking about Chomsky, <clears throat> um, which got me down that rabbit hole, but, uh, millions of people killed. There's a lot of people that deny it. Uh, Episode 2180, Mal's Mass Murder. Uh, Jason does a good job on that one. Uh, this one was uh, an interesting... We'll just play a few little clips here to a great man. Tom gives a speech about Lou Rockwell at Mises University. I thought this was uh, kind of an interesting thing, and it would be uh, it'd be fascinating to have someone... Hey, if you, are you a good enough man that someone to write a speech about you? Perhaps. Let's take it away. Instead of that talk, I'm giving a different talk. And there's a reason. There's a reason that there's no title given for my talk on your program. It's just luncheon with me. Now, usually the reason is I forgot to give them the title until it was too late and the programs had already been sent to the printer. But this time, there was a reason behind it. It's because I'm giving a talk that Lou Rockwell does not want me to give. Oh, no. And it's called The Lou Rockwell I Know. Now, Lou would hate this. This is the last thing in the world Lou wants. And in that way, he's very much like Ron Paul. Doesn't want people talking about him. You know, he's happy to just do his work, doesn't need public praise. Well, doggone it, Lou, you're just going to have to sit there and take it. That's what I have to say to you, okay? <laughs> oh, good old Tom. Okay, the next part we're going to do is, uh, I thought this was, uh, he kicks out a Times, New York Times reporter, and I think this is the, the one where Walter Block gets ripped up. I don't know, we'll see. Or of Austrian economics. I'm reminded of an incident some years ago in which a New York Times reporter showed up at the Mises Institute. Now, if this had been a typical libertarian institution, why the red carpet would have been rolled out for this reporter. Why, hello, good Kato. New York Times reporter, sir. We'd like to tell you about all the wonderful work we're doing here. And of course, we're confining ourselves to the range of opinion that you've so graciously allowed us. This was not exactly Lou Rockwell's reaction to finding out that a New York Times reporter had shown up at the Mises Institute. Lou's office, is, if you've been to the Mises Institute, you know, is on the second floor. Lou found out there's a New York Times reporter in the building he came shuffling right down those stairs and told the reporter that you're a mouthpiece for the regime and you're going to have to leave. And then he went right back up to his work. <laughs> now, uh, famously, Walter Block had a New York Times reporter, made a comment about slavery, about being voluntary or whatnot, uh, and got roasted for it. He sued the New York Times, you know, kind of defamation thing. I think what I remember, it was Sam Townhouse who wrote, by the way, one of the great biographies of uh, Whitaker Chambers. 
Um, and I think he's going to write one of um, William F. Buckley Jr. But anyway, I, so I didn't know he was a bad guy. Evidently he is. Um, that's just, that's fascinating. Though. Okay. Uh, there was one more part about defending Lou, but we'll skip off to the next one. We are going to, look, I had, um, I was going to say Jerry Sandusky, but I had uh, uh, John Ziegler, Death of Journalism podcast with the Benefit of Hindsight podcast. I had him on my show. Uh, one day we did a live show. We have to have it on there twice. Uh, and then I noticed first, and then he was also on Tom Woods. And I was like, oh, you, you shit. You, you, you were on Tom's. I got, I got outplayed, but that's fine. Uh, here's a little clip of the first part of that. Sandusky story was wrong all along. Suspected that something was amiss in that story, but I had no idea that the entirety of the story was totally and completely wrong. And we haven't just come up with a counter theory to what occurred, we actually flesh out what really did happen in a far more logical way than the news media ever dreamed of doing. One of the many, 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 many problems in that entire scenario, the entire narrative, is that nobody from the conventional wisdom standpoint ever even bothered to try to tell us, okay, so what do you think really happened here? We do well, that. What is, what is, first of all, for especially for people outside the U.S., what is alleged to have happened? Well, allegedly, and this is still to this day, set in stone as if it came down from Moses from Mount Sinai on a tablet, that Jerry Sandusky, former assistant football coach at Penn State University, was a serial pedophile for decades, and Penn State either didn't know about it or actually did know about it and enabled it and even covered up for it. And the legendary football coach Joe Paterno helped in this cover-up, and the esteemed, very respected administrators at Penn State, including Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz, all of whom went to jail for something that didn't happen, they all covered it up, all for this former assistant coach, and this is all now accepted as real and true and we don't even need to bother getting into the details because we just know it's all true. And I'm telling you that while I have no connection to Penn State, in fact, I actually despise Penn State for how they handled that entire story. I am 1000% sure I lose no sleep over my now very well-known assertion that the whole story is wrong. I would bet anything I have that I am right. The media is wrong. And one of the many ways that I know this is the case is that nobody knows as much about the case as I do. Not even Jerry Sandusky knows as much about the case as I do. And nobody, none of my critics will ever come close to forget about debating me. They won't even hear me out because they know they have no information, no argument, and they would get crushed because I know the story inside and out. And I basically, when people say, aren't you the guy that believes that Jerry Sandusky is innocent? I go, no, no. I'm the guy that proved Jerry Sandusky is innocent. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I listened to his whole podcast on that. Fascinating. The guy, and then when I talked to him, he said he just, he didn't have a script. He just went over, <laughs> over it in his head. And it is, uh, that that alone is fascinating. Okay, let's keep going on here. Uh, talking to John Ziegler, sorry, Ziegler, uh, trusting the media and conspiracies. Ready to go. Public, because having lived it for over 30 years, I know exactly through my own personal experience why people should not have trust of the news media, although I am far, 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 far less conspiratorial than a lot of, for instance, what I would refer to as the Trump base has become. I think the Trump base actually kind of has PTSD now and automatically jumps to conspiracy conclusions when they're not warranted because they're so used to being lied to by the news media. But I am absolutely in the camp that the news media, the bigger the story, this is a strange phenomenon, Tom, the bigger the story, the more likely the news media will blow it and the more dramatically the news media will likely blow it. That has been my experience, both personally as well as professionally in my 30 plus years of watching this. Crazy. Okay. Uh, last clip from here. Explain the bigger story, more to likely to fail. The bigger the story, the more likely to fail. 
Wait, uh, let me let me join it in here. Sorry. The bigger the story, the more likely it is to fail. John Ziegler, episode 2339, The Death of Joe. I found the truth about that whole deal is that I was willing to be unpopular. No one in the media who has any real power is willing to be unpopular because they have too much to lose. These people have very cushy lives. They are adored, the top ones, the most powerful ones. They get paid a lot of money. They live in their own little bubble. And the jobs, if they lose them, are nearly impossible to replace. And so nobody, that's why I say the bigger the story, the more likely it is that the media will blow it. Why? Because the bigger the story, the bigger the risk for going outside the herd. And if you go outside the media herd in a way that embarrasses them, you will get run over and crushed. That's what they've done to me, except I'm still standing. That is not an environment where the truth can win in situations where the truth, as it often is, is unpopular. Yeah, and I would suggest you listen to uh, Ziegler's show, The Death of Journalism. He does it, I think, daily. And um, good stuff there with, uh, he did have a co-host, but she decided she didn't have the time for it. Uh, but he breaks down journalism stuff. So a lot of a lot of good things there. Uh, next one we'll do here, Clint Russell, 2265. Clint Russell on woke corporations and what we should do now. Clint's been on our show many times. He was one of the first ones that kind of helped me uh, get going here. Um, and this is, well, let's make sure I have the right, right one. Okay, I don't have the right one going up here. Let's start it this one over. Um, sorry, it's the way it is. It's, it's, you know, got to be able to get these clips just right. And I don't download them. So anyway, here we go. Clint on, um, intro to Clint. ESG, because I wanted to ask you about that next, given that on the couple of occasions that I've covered it on my podcast, I've had people say, why don't you talk to Clint Russell about it? And the answer was, I didn't realize at that time how much you knew about it. Or of course we would have done this a lot sooner. So better late than never. First of all, what does ESG stand for? What's it all about? And what's the big deal? Yeah, ESG is Environmental, Social, and Governance. It began via the UN in 2004-05 arena. It was quickly adopted by all of the biggest money managers on earth and all of the biggest businesses on earth. And then it was taken up under the mantle of the World Economic Forum in the 2010 to 2012 arena. And over the past three years, it really became full force because Larry Fink of BlackRock sends out these letters once a year to all of the biggest businesses on the planet saying, hey, if you want any of our $10 trillion that we manage, you're going to have to get on board with this ESG stuff. And I mean, that's just a, an enormous incentive and one that I believe is ultimately extraordinarily dangerous and one that I don't think will improve the world, but instead ultimately create inflation, shortages, starvation, complete economic tumult. And because I understood that very early on, much earlier than most people, I decided to make that a big part of my show and trying to get our people to be the ones that are on the front lines of this message. Because Basically, anytime we identify a problem in the world, if it's not the libertarians that are delivering that warning, you end up getting status solutions that are offered. And I, I just, I refuse to have that be the case. So I was, I was trying to, trying to get anybody that I could to, from our scene to start to talk about it. And I'm very grateful that most of us have. Well, so what do you? There, there's a few other people that that work that ESG stuff. Uh, Russell Brand, I know, uh, Glenn Beck, uh, but Clint's been from the libertarian point of view. So I think that's that's important. Uh, play one more clip here from him. Sleep late and become a success. What? be running an empire by now. If mm -hmm. I had started then, if I'd had a mentor, if I had really known what I was doing, again, but particularly building up certain good habits. And so it, you know, I'm almost thinking maybe I should create maybe somewhere in my little school of life program, a separate thing about the kinds of habits that lead to, I don't like these habits that lead to success thing because the habits tend to be so generic and obvious. Right. Wake up early in the morning. First of all, you know what? I sleep late every single day. 
does not affect my productivity at all. So any of you people who think that being on a farmer's schedule makes you morally superior, I don't accept that. You could do that. I have no problem with it. it just does. don't look down on me. But a lot of these things are, they're just not actionable enough. They're not specific enough. But I mm -hmm. would like to come up with like a list of them. Look, if you can try and master the following five things by the time you're 25, you are going to be going places. Anyway, I'm thinking out loud. Normally, Clint, I give other people homework assignments. Here I am giving myself, myself an assignment. But anyway, the reason we're talking this way is we're talking out of love. We mm -hmm. love this movement. We love what it stands for. We love these ideas. We just want to see it succeed. And we feel like, I'm not saying there are no, there's no room for any more books. There, there always is. But I don't think we have any shortage of books. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think we have any shortage of the scholarly material. But what we do have a shortage of is public faces who are the kind of people that inspire others that say, you know, whatever that person is up to, I think I want to be up to that same thing. Right. I just want to see more of those because apparently the book route has run its course. You know, it's converted as many as it's going to convert. But to just have our people, just one after the other, be well put together, impressive, well-spoken, smart, clever, quick on their feet, that's what I want. Yeah, I preach. And I think that what I've also realized over the past couple of years is like, I didn't think that because I'm not necessarily the type that needs to be led, I thought that leadership wasn't so important. But people really do. They need inspiration. They need leaders in our movement that they can be inspired by and they can follow in their footsteps, their mold. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I had a dad who was an entrepreneur and very successful. And I had a stepdad who I was more raised by, who was very personable and loquacious, uh, just, just uh, and, and hilarious too. I had such great male figures in my life that formulated who I was. And so many people lack that. I'm not necessarily saying in our movement, just more broadly. And we, we now, because of the advent of technology and the internet and social media, we're able to reach so many more people. I just think that in some ways, that's what I'm finding myself in the position of. I get so many DMs from young people saying, you're really inspiring me. And that's, even now I get kind of choked up thinking about it because it's just so, it's so sad, you know, that just a stranger on the internet, some mortgage broker from San Diego is what people feel like they need in their lives. But Hey, youngin, send me DMs. Tell me I'm impressive. <laughs> uh, they said that, and by the way, Clint did a really good job. I'm glad he got his chance on Tom Wood's show. Uh, big fan of Clint, a uh, good guy. I met him in person. He, he was just super nice. Uh, took some pictures. He said he even voted for me for one of the offhand things on the Libertarian Party uh, convention. Uh, he even sent me the screenshot of it, uh, the snapshot. Um, so we, and I didn't win. I, mean, I maybe got one vote. Uh, Clint, literally, that's what the vote would have been, Tyler. Okay. He uh, Tom just said, hey, books have maybe run their course. So we're going to talk to two authors that were then, then on his show. Uh, 2283, Fake Conspiracy, Democrats... Dis conspiracies Democrats still believe with Keith Knight been on our show as well of don't tread on anyone Tom take it away hey everybody Tom Woods here our old friend Keith Knight is with us again Keith is with the Libertarian Institute and Keith you interviewed me once and the substance of it was you were throwing out a name at me somebody significant in our movement a significant thinker and you wanted me to summarize that person's contributions and these were thinkers ranging back to the late 17th century because I know John Locke was one of them going all the way up through the 21st century, like with Michael Humer, for example. And I just loved that. I thought that was a thrill. I didn't know what name you're going to throw at me. And I felt like I did a creditable job honoring their contributions. It was just terrific. So in this episode, I'm thinking a little bit of returning the favor. Not so much that you have to respond in lightning style, but that as with my appearance with you, each topic we cover could easily be a podcast episode. But we just want to summarize, give people, I don't want to say the talking points, but the basic gist of a whole bunch of things. So you ready? Ready. First of all, Keith, give people a better background. That was a shameful introduction. Tell people more about yourself before we get going. 
I run the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast at the Libertarian Institute, where I'm the managing editor. There, we are trying to get a free educational archive for all things libertarian. So you can go to libertarianinstitute.org, use the search engine, type in minimum wage, Winston Churchill, Yemen, agriculture subsidies. And we are uh, attempting to have all the relevant information on all those topics for people for free. I also organized the Voluntarist Handbook, a free PDF you can get at libertarianinstitute.org. This is the book that I wanted to make so I could give one book as an introduction to people. So you know how they have us go through 12 years of government schooling and don't teach us much. I thought one book that would really teach them something would be a good way to well, lead by example. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think, by the way, and, and the book you mentioned, you know I'm a big fan, but we did an episode on it. I really like it. I think it's a great, it's a great intro, and it's also a great refresher for people who have been around a while, but you don't remember everything or all the strong arguments and this and that, and it's all in there. And you're going to learn fresh things you didn't learn the first time. So very worthwhile. I think you could make a great ebook out of these debunked conspiracy theories that you talked about in your speech. Hmm, that's a good idea. Uh-huh. Well, maybe he does. Uh, by the way, I just went to Libertarian Institute and thought of a good, what, what's a good libertarian policy thing I could just take? He said, hey, you know, Yemen, type in age of consent. Uh, well, oddly, I thought I was going to stump it. No, they they've got some uh, they've got some age of consent there. Uh, Tommy Salmon's the age of consent with deviancy and deviancy with Jay. There, there's a podcast there. There's something for everybody there. Okay. Um, once again, this is the, the conspiracies Democrats still believe in. Uh, Russia. We're just gonna play one more clip here. RussiaGate one and two. Oh dear, don't tell me that's what it is. Uh, and by the way, um, Keith Knight. Is there? No, I played that first one there. The introduction, partly because. Uh, and I, I wanted you to get an idea. I mean, you got Tom Woods, pretty famous out here, and you bring him on your show and you get him a chance, you get a chance to have him. He then brings you on his show and he tells you, I was thrilled with the way the interview went. Basically what he's saying. That's that's high praise. Good job for Keith. Pretty proud of him for doing that and uh, Tom Woods uh, for, for saying that. And, and so Tom pays him back here with this. I think he's been on there twice now. Here we go. What the distinction is and why there's no substance to it. Russiagate 1.0. This is Hillary Clinton on the president. And by the way, it may sound like Keith is reading it. He might be, but he also just can spew stuff like Scott Horton, almost like he's, he is reading it. So I can't be for sure that he's reading it. It almost sounds like he is, but stage Saying multiple times, 17 intelligence agencies, Donald Trump, have confirmed that they were the ones, the Russians were the ones who hacked my email. 17 agencies. Are you saying you don't believe 17 of our American intelligence agencies? Turns out, of course, this was fake news. On June 29th, 2017, the New York Times, to their credit, issued a correction. The assessment was made by four intelligence agencies, the DNI, the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA. The assessment was not approved by all 17 organizations in the American intelligence community. Now, where were the public servants and the other 13 intelligence agencies coming out and saying, whoa, whoa, hey, let's not provoke war with a nuclear power. We did not come to that conclusion. Miss Clinton, can you please clarify? Of course, these are just organizations set up to feed military industrial interests. From the Mueller report, one or two quotes, the investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. person knowingly or intentionally coordinated with the IRA's interference operation, referring to the Russian regime there. The investigation did not, however, yield evidence sufficient to sustain any charge subject to the direction or control of the government of Russia or any official thereof. That is the first one. Now, it's important to know in the interim between Russia 1.0 and 2.0, they came out, the New York Times specifically, and said Vladimir Putin is hiring members of the Taliban in Afghanistan to murder American soldiers. This is another act of war. Later cleared up on NBC News, a article titled, Remember Those Russian Bounties for Dead U.S. Troops? Here is Joe Biden. Uh, look, 
go check that one out. Keith Knight rattles stuff off like you wouldn't believe. And it was a good full. And I liked how they did the shotgun approach with him as well. Okay. We're moving right along. Uh, another one, 2326, the path to a libertarian future with Jack Lloyd. He wrote a book as well. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but he wrote, I think he, this is his second one. I'm not quite sure. Um, let's see. Tom says this is an important book. So why does Tom say that? And do you agree? about that from time to time otherwise it's all going to be as i say just nothing but reacting to oddball events and there's merit in that but it can be very distracting to do that absolutely yeah and that's exactly why i wrote this book is because so many people hear about libertarian principles and they kind of get a sense of it and they get some issue advocacy things going like oh maybe we should end the war on drugs or yeah we gotta do something about the fed but very few people have a cohesive coherent cogent advocacy that kind of unifies everything together in a way that they can consistently and practically apply those principles in action and general advocacy. So that's why I put this book together, because I saw so many people not able to articulate that in a succinct way. And I think that more than ever, it's right, because there's so many people who are seeing the message of liberty now that it's become kind of mainstreamed, thanks to, in part, as you just mentioned, all the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the nonsense with the government over COVID and how much they have tried to manipulate people into having a totalitarian police state. And a lot of people are now primed and ready to hear the message because they saw just how bad things can be whether it's the riots and police not actually doing anything and saying you're just on your own, you know, the governors and the mayors just letting things go on to the government trying to force medical experimentation on people. People are, are starting to wake up and now they need that type of vision to say, okay, how do we have this never happen again? How do we actually advocate for things that decentralize the state power that has grown so enormous that it's really just unfathomable how much they have intervened in our lives and how much they rationalize controlling us? I should say that it's necessary for people to have an open mind before they read a book like this because, or listen to a conversation like this one, because you and I will say very matter-of-factly things that will sound shocking to a lot of people. But I would just caution people just to stop and realize that the way out of the present situation is not going to involve creating a system that looks 12% different from the one we have now, or just changing 2% of things on the margins. It's going to have to be changed root and branch. And that is going to involve proposals you've never thought of or things that sound utopian or whatever, but that's natural. We're so far from where we want to be, and we're so far from the humane society we want, that the measures we recommend will indeed sound oddball. But what we need to understand is that the real oddballs are the people running the show now. What's really oddball is the present system. And, and I, look, I, you know, living in Ancapistan in your head and all that stuff, you know, doesn't work in real life. I, I get it. I, I do think, and I talked to this uh, with Tho Bishop when he was on your but of like, moving the Overton window. It's still, I think, important to have some of these discussions with your normie friends and family so that those ideas and concepts aren't so strange. You know, I talk about this about my right-wing family and how they push back. I'm like, you're literally pushing back from more free market. It's it's bizarre, but the more I talk about it, it's, you know, the better it is. So, um, but you still got to live in the real world. Uh, one last clip here, two clips left in general, but one, this one back uh, from, I was debating whether to play this one from uh, Jack Lloyd saying it's, uh, I have it a little bit long. Maybe I won't let it go the whole way, uh, but it was uh, right-wing populism. Uh, I thought it would compare it with the last clip of, of Dave Smith and Tom talking about RFK. One other thing. We've go. seen since the rise of Donald Trump politically, the phenomenon of right-wing populism. And there are some benefits to it in the sense that sometimes it's directed at the right bad guys. So sometimes the movement gets very upset at the military-industrial complex. I think that's great. Good. Direct their anger there. Sometimes they even get upset at the Federal Reserve. Great. Excellent. Sometimes they get upset at Dr. Fauci. Tremendous. That would never have happened under a Mitt Romney. Now, of course, Trump is the one who brought Fauci in to direct the whole thing, but he eventually turned on Fauci in a way that 
I don't think the regular Republican Party ever would have. So there have been some good things. But on the other hand, then sometimes it's turned against the wrong thing. So I, I don't want to be lectured to about how we need to go to war with China or this. Some of these things they get sidetracked on. I don't really want that. But the other side of this right wing populism thing is that the politicians associated with it appear to have made their peace with the huge welfare spending programs and particularly Social Security and Medicare. And I know it sounds heartless to say that something needs to be done about these programs. But if you've looked at the numbers of where these things are going in the future, there's no way it can be sustained. So it's not evil to point that out. That's just a fact. Facts don't care about your feelings. Well, this is a fact that doesn't care about your feelings. But because the movement is populist, it doesn't go right at programs that its own constituency likes. And its own constituency is very much at peace with those programs. But those programs can't possibly persist given all the money they're going to require in the future and how little there will be in reality. So you here, again, take a very radical libertarian approach to these sorts of questions. But the issue is, it just seems like a loser rhetorically to say, yeah, we really, really need to go after Medicare. That just seems like a loser. So how do you mitigate that? Absolutely. So when it comes to those points, absolutely salient about that with the inevitable collapse of these funding structures. As you said, it's mathematically impossible to sustain the number of beneficiaries. The amount of benefits far outweighs what can actually be gained from taking everybody's money, even if they stole everybody's wealth, right? And they just tax everybody 100%. It's just astronomical what these benefits are supposed to pay out in the future. So that obviously couched on its own. We need to look at the fundamental problems of why there are all these distortions in retirement and healthcare and taking care of people and so on and so forth. And I do touch on this in my book. I do touch on how we have an incredibly destructive healthcare system with how things have been manipulated between the tax incentives with you know, employers providing health services, you know, healthcare through their businesses with banning interstate insurance plans and so on and so forth and trying to push more and more people to get insurance for things that don't even need insurance. If you know you're going to have a regular checkup, that's predictable, right? You, you know that's going to come up. You know that you're going to have to pay for it. And now you're just adding on a middle person who's going to just take more money and then maybe pay the doctor six months later. So I talk about a lot of these things where there is a huge amount of savings to be had in reforming all these different types of programs. Okay, I totally understand. But you're now just talking practical stuff that's not going to really work because people don't really care. Uh, nothing against that. But I mean, you know how this works. So yes. Talk. Okay, so populism. I'm curious about that of how uh, is RFK? Is he a populist? I don't know. Possibly. There's some things that he's definitely pushing back on. Uh, two quick things. One, let's do this here. I do have the uh, volunteers handbook, Keith Knight. We go Keith Knight, uh, created by or what did he say? Organized by. It's pretty good. It's a lot of different authors in the vein of Michael Malice's um, Anarchist Handbook. Uh, okay, so let's go up here. Last clip I'm going to play. This is Dave Smith with um, episode 2337. Dave Smith on Tucker Carlson, RFK Jr., and more. Um, let's go. I don't even have to scratch the surface and go very deep to find things that would make me roll my eyes about. RFK Jr. But man, one thing you can say about that guy is he is undeceived and that he's willing to say the opposite of what the establishment wants to hear over and over and over again. And the fact is, you know, that you can see the way they treat him, that he's not one. Of, they love talking about democracy. But when you get mm -hmm. somebody outside the officially allowed parameters of opinion who wants to get your vote, well, they don't like that because that's not what they mean by democracy. They mean that no matter which candidate you vote for, they win. And he's different from that. So I have very much a rooting interest in RFK Jr., I think he's been absolutely fearless on things that he knows are going to be used against him. So I hope he does really well. 
Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm rooting for the guy to have a big moment. And it probably helps to be an outsider when you know that the CIA murdered your uncle and possibly your dad. It probably helps to really hate the system if that's your worldview. But yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I used to, as a lot of people have opinions on Rothbard's alliances, like in the 60s, he kind of allied up with some people on the new left. And then in the 90s, he allied up with the paleoconservative types. And I used to kind of agree with some of the criticisms of them, like, yeah, just stay pure, you know, and hold the banner for libertarianism. And there's too many, these people have too many problems. But Looking back at it now, I think he was completely right about both of them. I think he was right to ally with the new left, and I think he was right to ally with Pat Buchanan and those guys. Because in a sense, you've got to kind of take what's around you and try to make the most of it. If we really care about these beautiful ideas that we hold, then it's kind of incumbent on us to see how we can actually give them some chance of having some degree of application to the real world. And it's interesting because during, say, like the Donald Trump years or during the early 90s when Pat Buchanan was running for president, I think the attacks on, say... Lou Rockwell and the Mises Institute would have been like, oh my God, they're such far right-wingers. This is a real departure from pure libertarianism or something like that. And yet you can look at all these other points in history, like say during the Vietnam War, where Murray Rothbard was much more sympathetic to the people who were against the Vietnam War, because that was the most important thing at the time. And then of course, during the George W. Bush years, I mean, go back and read some of the pieces Lou Rockwell was writing about how the Nation magazine had much more in common with us than anything coming out of foreign affairs or something like that. And it kind of seems more like this is an indication of the red pill, blue pill distinction, that if you understand how evil this regime is, you just have a different outlook on the world. And so in the early 2000s, from, say, 9-11 to 2008, the establishment was very favorable to the neoconservatives. And, the, you know, the New York Times was selling George W. Bush's war in Iraq. And who was the loudest voice against all of them? It was Lou Rockwell. He was the one criticizing all of them the harshest, completely against the regime. And what was the accusation at the time would have been, you sound like a lefty. That would have been what the neocons would have said to him, right? And then now that we have the rise of woke progressivism and all the insanity of the Obama years and Joe Biden and stuff like that, well, now they're saying, oh, well, you're more sympathetic to these guys. But the point I'm making is that, see, like Reason Magazine never would have been nearly as harsh on the neocons as Lou Rockwell would have been. And Reason Magazine also won't be as harsh on woke insanity as Lou Rockwell would be. And so to me, like the logical conclusion from that is not that like, oh, this guy's a kooky right winger. It's that this guy's willing to oppose the regime when it's its most difficult to do so. And so when you have that mentality, yeah, you see a guy like RFK Jr. And our immediate thing is like, no, we're the right wing libertarians. We don't like anyone coming from like this democratic perspective. Our attitude is like, whoa, this guy is really saying some important things about the COVID vaccine, about the war in Ukraine, about the unholy alliance of big business and big government. I'd like that message to reach more people. Okay, uh, just a, a, an interesting aspect of this. Okay, so I recently, let's see if I can find it here. Okay, I recently did a podcast, uh, an episode, so what, an hour, right at an hour, hour and five seconds about RFK Jr. Did I say, I said BFD or WTF? Is it a big fucking deal or what the F? Um, and I, I don't, I'm kind of ambivalent here, but there's, definitely some problems with him okay so you can say the anti-war stuff good but you know he's really praised chavez in a, in a weird way and i know he's got the climate denial thing that he's trying to backtrack from but he still is for suppressing speech and thought on those so there's some big problems and so i i, I listened to dave he just had a recent podcast too about uh, rfk and uh junior uh, did I say JFK Jr. on this thing? Holy shit! I'm gonna have to actually change that thing. It's it's RFK, not JFK. What a what a dumbass I, <laughs> I am. I just now noticed that. Um, yeah, I hate it when I do those things. Okay, the point is, um, now I'm really disturbed about that. The point is, uh, though, uh, Dave has said before, you know, never do the bidding of the regime. 
uh, or the empire and is promoting RFK doing that or does it help push out Biden and therefore the Overton window is a little bit better? I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of ambivalent about some of this thing. I just am not big about uh, setting praise for him either. We are done with the clips, all the clips thing there. And what it had revealed, we revealed that I put JFK instead of RFK on a, on a thing. Okay, I hope you liked it. But we're not done because I'm going to come back. Stay tuned. I'm going to do this next episode tomorrow. I'll come back with an overview of Tom's episodes. Break them down. I have some categories. <sighs> People, it's a lot of, lot of stuff. Thanks. Okay, I'm leaving now. Bye, guys. But she's back. And now. Chick-fil-A is completely overrated. It's not that good. I prefer Zaxby's. I prefer Popeye's. Takes a tough man to make a tender forecast, Nick. And I guess that's me. <laughs> Keep fucking that chicken. For, should I vote for Dick Cheney on the Libertarian Party? Do yes. I have an obligation to vote for Dick Cheney? I would say so. Yes. Did it work for those people? <laughs> no. It never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but... <laughs> But it might work for us. That one dude was like, not a podcast, I can't find it anywhere, and they don't have video. <laughs> oh, yeah, Peter Janky, yeah. Easy. Yeah, I blocked him. I'll do it. If he unblocks me, I'll... I'll... <laughs> He'll buy your shirt if you unblock him, Bert. He's a wigger. Yeah, nothing cooler than so a 49-year-old wigger. Like, yeah, I just started I live streaming. Cut me some slack. I'm fucking... I'm pretty high-tech for a boomer. Uh, but anyways... I'm a boomer. I...